Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lestgarten. Today, I'm talking with Michael Fulweiler. Michael Fulweiler is the Director of Brand at HERD, the Financial Back Office for Therapists. He's also the founder of Fulweiler Media, a marketing consultancy for mental health companies and author of Therapy Marketer a popular weekly marketing newsletter for therapists. Previously, he was the chief marketing officer of the Gottman Institute. Thank you, Michael, for being here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Sam, for having me. Of course, please call me Sam. (laughs) Um, uh, So, you know, when when I want to jump right into this, I recently saw your, uh, I think it was a PDF document, and it was called the Financial State of Private Practice. And it's seemingly a new document that y'all had heard are putting out there. And I, I just want to be transparent about my background. I, I think relatively recently started a private practice in the, the grand spectrum about two and a half years ago. And I struggled to navigate various business challenges, like the unknowns. I don't know what I don't know kind of ideas, right? And various pitfalls, whether that's with navigating credentialing with insurance or how do I approach um, my uh, entity registration with the state that I'm operating in? And uh, you know, what do providers charge for their services? And do I create a, a sliding scale? Or how much should I slide if I do? And how much might I make if I take this leap of faith and go into private practice? You know, I'm leaving potentially for a lot of folks, I think, that are going to listen to this. I'm leaving a W-2 full-time position. And oh my gosh, what happens if I suddenly jump into private practice? And I didn't have answers back then when I first started to to consider this and started the journey. And that's why I'm really, really excited to be talking to you today, Michael, because this report and some of the work that y'all have been doing seems like might give providers better answers than ever before. So tell us a little bit about it. Absolutely. So your experience is very common. And if you're, you know, a psychologist who is listening to this and you're, you know, considering going into private practice or, you know, you are in private practice and you had some of those, you know, questions going in, it's a very common experience. And it's, it's something that we hear a lot at herd. And so our goal with this report was really to kind of pull back the curtain on, on some of those questions, especially around finances. You know, there's, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of secrecy around around money in the field especially when it comes to you know payers and insurance companies you know and so our goal was to survey as many mental health professionals as possible in private practice and try to really understand the financial state of of private practice today which is really about you know how much are therapists making? How much mm-hmm. are they spending? How are they feeling about their finances? Um, and you know, the report that we put together, I think, is is very helpful and insightful. When you talk about um, the respondents of the survey, it sounds like it's inclusive of a lot of different training backgrounds, area of expertise. Tell me a little bit about like. Who who responded? Who are these folks? It's it sounds like it's not just psychologists. I'd love to better understand the the scope of it. 
So when we set out to to create this report, you know, it started with with the survey. And so we wanted to, you know, go out and, you know, survey survey therapists and my goal was to speak to a, a hundred therapists. I thought that would be that would be pretty cool. <laughs> we ended up hearing from over 1200, so 1216 wow. wow. total mental health professionals responded to our survey which I was just overwhelmed by. And mm-hmm. you know, I think that speaks to the demand for for this kind of information. Uh, we did ask about license type. And mm-hmm. so the most common license type of therapists who responded to the survey were social workers, which, mm-hmm. which is consistent, you know, kind of with the national average, um, 26.7% of respondents were social workers. We also heard from mental health counselors, professional counselors, marriage and family therapists, and psychologists, of course, psychologists made up 16.9% of our data set. Um, we heard from folks from all 50 states. Um, mm. The most common states will not surprise you. They're <laughs> the most yeah. populous states. California came in at 22% of our respondents, followed by New York, Florida, Texas, and, and Colorado. But but overall, what we feel like is a you know a representative sample of of private practice owners in the U.S. today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you've got a massive amount of data all of a sudden, a surprising amount of data sounds like than you even expected to receive. Now that you've got all this data, what's going through your mind? What like what what did you then suddenly kick into gear to to start analyzing and better understanding this? So at you know, a hundred respondents, you know, it's it's pretty easy to mm-hmm. to go through the numbers, pull out insights, form conclusions. With 1,200 respondents, <laughs> becomes a much more uh, difficult task, and so we actually had to bring in a, a data analyst to you know help us analyze the data and pull it into Excel and, and make pivot tables. And you know we were really interested in looking at cross sections of data, and so we wanted to understand how much therapists are charging across different license types. We wanted to look at how much are therapists making in different states. We're also interested in looking at um, particular payers. So, you know, how much are therapists making by insurance company? What What is the range there? Are some insurance companies paying more than other insurance companies? And so all of that, um, you know, was something that we were, we were able to dig into. I will say that um, there were some states that we didn't have enough respondents to form you know, a definitive conclusion about, mm-hmm. uh, and we can get into that here in a, in a minute, but I uh, mm-hmm. just wanted to, you know, mention that as, as a limitation that we had. Um, so we weren't able to make conclusions about all 50 states. So, you know, what we sure. did in the, the report itself was we actually pulled out the top five states that we had okay. responses from and, and looked at those. So it's like California, New York. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot to name the other three, but I'm curious, what what are the other top three? Yeah, so it's California, New York, Florida, Texas, and Colorado. Okay, all right. And I I heard you name something there, Michael, that uh, immediately caught my attention, right? We're talking about rates and the possibility of raising rates and just what people charge in general, but also about insurance reimbursement. It seems like you got some data as well from providers about 
what insurance companies are generally giving them. Help me understand um, what you learned in that process. Yeah. So the way that we frame this question in the survey was the the range of payment, whether private pay or from insurance. And so you know, we didn't ask for a particular amount because we know that therapists have a wide range, whether it's from you know insurance or from private pay. And so we were able to look at um, you know which range was the most common in order to form a conclusion. And it's it's pretty telling. So when we look at folks who take insurance, 25% of those respondents said that they were earning between 100 and 125 dollars per session mm-hmm. from insurance. 12% of respondents said that they were earning under hundred dollars per session from wow. insurance, which which to me is too low. Um, mm-hmm. And when we compare that to to private pay, the most common range for um, for private pay rate was 150 to 175 dollars per session. And that was at 21% of respondents said that they were charging between 150 and 175. So the yeah. income potential, which which we know, right, um, is higher for private pay than than for insurance. Michael, I'm just imagining myself as a graduate student. And we've got graduate students and people that have graduated from programs but are not yet licensed, and they're associates at the National Register. And so I'm thinking as you name off some of these payment levels or reimbursement rates that some folks might be thinking, why is Michael saying less than $100 is not enough? I I don't get it. I, as a graduate student, I think I made $19,000 a year. And on an hourly rate, that would have been less than minimum wage probably. And so going from let's say at that time it was probably seven eight dollars maybe nine dollars an hour to a hundred dollars an hour or let's say 95 to be less than a hundred dollars that sounds like a huge leap what am I missing here yeah it's a it's a great question um I mean on the surface right yeah like ninety dollars a session hundred dollars a session it sounds like a lot but we have to think about that you know it's not hundred dollars in the traditional sense, right? Because, you know, psychologists are not working typically, they're not billing 40 clinical hours per week. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, a full caseload is probably more like 20 to 25 clients. Um, and then that's also before taxes. So mm-hmm. depending on where you live, your tax bracket, um, your tax entity for your practice, you know, it's, somewhere around 30% is going to come right off the top. Um, And then you also have expenses associated with running a practice as a therapist. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, have some data on that as well. And so, you know, that kind of hundred dollars starts to come smaller and smaller and smaller. Also, you know, a lot of psychologists, a lot of therapists are, you know, coming out of school with a large amount of student loan debt that they're, you know, they're paying down as well. Um, And so, you know, I, I have a belief that mental health professionals are, you know, undervalued and underpaid in this country is, you know, especially if you look across healthcare and, you know, if you compare insurance reimbursement rates to, you know, medical, uh, reimbursement rates, therapists tend to be, tend to be much lower. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
as we talked about earlier, the mental health field is what this this financial state of private practice looked at. It was really inclusive of a bunch of different titles. If I'm not mistaken, even psychiatry was involved to some extent. And so I, I'd like to kind of look at psychologists in particular within that licensure group. I wonder understand how that group might compare to other providers for rates or reimbursement. How did being a psychologist change the data or change what you saw in comparison to other fields? Yeah, when when we look at psychologists, um, they tend to be doing pretty well. Um, when we look at private pay rates, the you know the most common range for for a psychologist was one hundred seventy five to two hundred dollars a session. I mentioned earlier that across license types, that's more in the one hundred twenty five to one hundred fifty. Eleven percent of the psychologists that responded charge over $250 per session, which of the license types surveyed was the highest, even more than mm. psychiatrists. So mm. more psychologists who were surveyed um, responded that they charge over $250 per session. This is private pay, which was more than psychiatrists, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and then and sort of another interesting insight from our from our data was that of the 205 psychologists that responded to our survey, zero um, responded that they took, uh, they only take insurance. Mm. Um, and so all of the psychologists, in other words, all the psychologists um, at least have some cash pay clients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All of the psychologists have some Correct. cash pay that responded. Correct. So, so none are only taking insurance. Right, right. So there's the suggestion would be that there's there usually with a blend of different types of being reimbursed whether that's from the client themselves or an insurance company for the most part correct yeah. yeah so you know when we look at you know across the the license types you know psychologists tend to charge more also you know part of that is due to a lot of the psychologists that that we surveyed, my assumption is their PhD, you know, PsyDs. So, you know, have kind of more, more education allows them to, to charge a bit more. I'd also say to, you know, if you're listening to this and you are a psychologist and you're charging under $175 per session, you know, there's, there's probably an opportunity that you can raise your rates depending on where you live and the population that you serve. So you may not be charging enough. Michael, I think that that's a really important component of this report. What's going through my head is like, okay, as a psychologist, how do I use what you found to inform my practice or at least the business side of, of things? And so you talk about, hey, if you're if you're charging less than this, it might be time to consider questioning that or, or potentially increasing your rates. What other takeaways or what other things might I be thinking about for my own practice? I'm I'm thinking about like, okay, so, you know, what else can I change? What else? Are there more opportunities here? Definitely. Yeah. There was some other interesting insights from the data. Uh, one insight that was surprising to me is, you know, we asked folks if they take insurance and mm -hmm. what I hear a lot today is, you know, most therapists don't take insurance and actually mm -hmm. 75%. So a large majority of respondents said that they took some form of insurance. Um, 
So I, I, I found that to be, to be interesting. Um, could of course be, you know, skewed by the data that, that we have. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, most, most therapists today are taking some form of insurance. Um, when we look at gross income, and so this is income, you know, before taxes are taken out before expenses, more than half of the therapists that we surveyed grossed under a hundred thousand dollars last year. Mm. So if you think about, you know, compared to, you know, a W2 salary job, that's like your, your salary is your gross income, right? Before any withholdings. Um, when we look at net income, so that's after expenses, that number is 65%. So 65% of therapists surveyed, um, brought in less than a hundred thousand dollars last year after expenses. Again, I, I think that number is too low. I think mm-hmm. the therapists should be making six figures. Um, you know, to me, that feels like table stakes. And so a lot of that is, is driven by insurance, right? I think if, if insurance reimbursement rates go up, I think, you know, therapists are, are able to make more money, um, and be able to pay off those, <laughs> those student loans. Right. Um, well, one of the first things that came to my mind, Michael, when I laid eyes on the report was just, oh my gosh, you've got that data. It's so rare for providers to be able to see, especially across disciplines, for providers to be able to see how are they stacking up, not just against other fields within mental health, but also across insurance, uh, like payers, providers, but also even across different states potentially too. And I know that there's some limitations to the data, just given you know how much you got from each state, but there's a lot of potential here to have transparency, for lack of a better word, in a domain where it's inherently been pretty opaque. Uh, there are a lot of non-disclosure agreements that get signed for these kind of data. And so understandably, unless you've got someone in the know or a colleague who will you know, tell you, well, when I got on the panel, this is what I got, it's hard to come by that data. It's really hard to come by that data. And so I'm thinking about what you're saying there of like, wow, okay, so if you're making less than that and you're taking these kinds of insurance companies, it, it would get me thinking, you know, am I, am I having a fair shake here? Yeah. And I think it's also an opportunity to go to your insurance company and renegotiate mm-hmm. that rate mm-hmm. and say, Hey, <laughs> this report found that, you know, most therapists from this company are making this much money or in, mm-hmm. you know, in my state, the average reimbursement rate is this, you know? And so you have some, some data, right. Mm-hmm. To, to take, take to them and, you know, try to re- renegotiate what that rate is. Mm-hmm. And this is not necessarily a place or a platform to to take a a policy perspective, but I'm cognizant that there are many states where pay needs to be disclosed um, for regular salary jobs, and you know so you'll you'll notice like a, a expected pay range at the bottom of a of a job. I'm sure you know it better than I do, Michael. In some ways, and so I, uh, you know would would be thinking oh wow like is there space for such a thing to have in some ways pay equity but within mm. insurance companies like there's a disclosure that is that is placed um as someone applies for some provider or another and uh but in the absence of that data like this what a what a gold mine for providers to be able to make informed decisions about 
what to do next and who to get paneled with. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's supposed to be parity, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Across, you know, mental health and, you know, medical reimbursement rates. And, you know, we've seen that that's not always the case. And mm-hmm. so um, absolutely. I think having more transparency there, I, I know um, in New York in particular, like if you're hiring in New York, um, I think it's New York city. I don't think it's New York state, but mm-hmm. you do, it's required by law to disclose what the salary range is for the position. Right. Mm-hmm. And so doing something similar, even if it's a range, I think for, for insurance companies would be, would be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I want to sort of segue to, to thinking about where y'all go with this report next. I had so many takeaways from it, even things that we didn't get a chance to to talk about on the podcast today, but what happens next? How are you going to uh, improve on this and iterate it over the years? Before I get to that, I just wanted to mention kind of two more data Please, points yeah. I, I wanted to share. Um, so you mentioned in the introduction about sliding scale, if that's something that you wanted to offer or not. And we we did ask folks if they offer a sliding scale. And so if you're if you're listening and you're not sure what that means, that you know, essentially you're able to offer kind of a sliding scale rate for your for practice based on you know income or ability to pay. And so 73% of respondents, so again, a large majority, so they offer some sort of sliding scale. Wow. Um, I, I've heard being able to offer a sliding scale as kind of an argument for operating a cash pay practice versus insurance because mm-hmm. you know if you have clients who are paying your full cash pay rate, you're able to offer kind of a kind of sliding scale or um, discounted slots in your practice because you have, you know, certain clients paying the full amount. Mm -hmm. Um, We also asked folks if they had other sources of income. So we know today, you know, there's potential as a psychologist to um, generate income as a consultant or Mm -hmm. as a speaker Mm -hmm. or as a writer. And 30% 30% or excuse me, 39% of mm. respondents. So almost half if we're yeah. <laughs> generously rounding up. Big so round 40%, up, yeah. <laughs> so 39% of respondents said they had another source of income, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the most common was consulting. So 22% mm-hmm. of, of folks who have, you know, another stream of income are also doing some consulting work outside of their practice. So I thought that that was interesting and certainly speaks to, you know, the opportunity, if that's something that you're interested in to make money, you know, outside of your, your clinical work. So to go back to your question in terms of, you know, where do we go from here? Something that I'm really excited about is the opportunity to put out this report every year. You know, I would, I would love to do this every year. And what that will enable us to do is, also not just measure the state of private practice in that given year, but also to measure trends over time. And so, you know, I'm really curious next year, what that, you know, income will look like, will it have gone up? Will it have gone down? Um, you know, kind of year over year trends, I think will be, will be interesting to, to look at. And I think there's also an opportunity to um, kind of clean up the data and, improve the way that we ask questions. I think there was some limitations um, just in the way that the survey was formatted. And so we definitely learned a lot, this being the first year 
that, sure. that we did it. And so, you know, look forward to, um, offering the survey again next year and, um, kind of integrating those learnings into the way that we, um, offered the survey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one last thing I'll say about insurance and reimbursement and, and raising rates, just given what you've shared thus far is that we've gone through a really high inflation period as a country, as an earth, you know, across the globe, uh, many countries have been in a really high inflation environment. And um, so it's, it's, it's an important kind of timing to, to question what are our reimbursement rates. And at the same point, my hunch is as providers, it's far harder to, to sort of see that rate go up with inflation than it is for health insurance companies to charge more as a consumer of health. Mm. Um, I know that my health insurance has cost me, I think, 10% more this year. And yet at the same point, as a provider that takes insurance, I'm, I'm not sure that that rate has been reflected in the, the change in reimbursement. So to your point about that idea of like asking some of these questions and getting year over year data, that longitudinal or just, just sort of like regular kind of assessment of, of where things are at. I think is going to be really, really empowering to providers to be able to say, oh, wow. So there's some providers out there that that are, well, not just some, but the majority of at least respondents who are taking insurance and have noticed some change in these rates yeah. that if yours hasn't, okay, maybe it's time that I do talk to that insurance company and just ask. Right. Um, it can feel a little bit like David and Goliath, but at the same point, the ask is there. Definitely. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious as as you work for Herd too. How, how does Herd look at this data? What does this mean for the company? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, you know, the kind of primary motivation for for this report was really just to surface this data, right, and make it accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is also validating, I think, for the need. For the services that we offer, you know, we asked mm-hmm. also what was your biggest expense for your practice. Oh yeah, nine, what was nine nine point three percent of people said they didn't know. So you know, like almost ten wow. percent of respondents didn't didn't know what their biggest expense was last year, was which suggests that they're they're probably not doing bookkeeping or they're behind on their bookkeeping. And that's, that's a service that we provide through herd. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're curious, the largest expense, uh, well, what do you think the largest expense was? I'm, I, I'm immediately was just like racking my brain through, you know, uh, uh I'm like thinking of, cause it rent and space of like an office. I, let me just think, hold on here. Um, I mean, education and, and continuing ed can be really expensive too, if, especially if you're including the travel to those events and things like that. But I don't know, let me go with rent and space. What, what are we, what are we saying? Yeah, that, that hunch is correct. So okay. um, the biggest expense, so 28% of respondents um, reported that rent was their biggest expense. So um, mm-hmm. to me, that was somewhat surprising, right? We know rent office space is a big expense, but my mm-hmm. assumption was that, you know, in the last few years, most therapists are operating out of a home office, but maybe sure. some are, you know, locked into leases they signed from before COVID or they're going back to the office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, some, some folks aren't 
aren't keeping up with their um, their financial record keeping. So for us, you know, that's certainly validating. We also asked about quarterly taxes. Mm. You know, so if you're if you're not familiar, the the general rule is if you expect to owe more than a thousand dollars in taxes at the end of the year, the IRS wants you to make estimated payments quarterly. Right. So they expect you to pay in four times a year. We asked respondents if they paid quarterly taxes last year, and only 54.4% paid their taxes quarterly. So about half, which means half of the respondents mm. didn't pay quarterly taxes mm. last year. Um, again, this is a service that we provide at Herd. There's a lot of confusion around. Yeah how much to pay and how to pay and how does all of that work, especially if you're, you know, in private practice or self-employed for the first time. And some folks mm-hmm. just, they wait until the end of the year and then they get hit with a big tax bill. They're not expecting. Um, they also may, you know, get hit with some penalties. And so, you know, if you're listening, definitely encourage you to, to make those estimated payments quarterly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many things that I, I would guess impact the, the quarterly payment that you actually make and estimating what you owe. And that, that as a provider, uh, again, full transparency, not an area of our training, you know, and not an area where I was like, okay, I can do this. I can, I can calculate all the income and business expenses, and then also estimate my quarterly taxes with my partner's income included in the mix too, to figure out what will we owe then. So it can be really, really overwhelming. And um, so I don't, you know, when I hear that, I think, hey, I can appreciate the half or so that that may not have done that or may not have known or or may struggle to to think about what that's going to mean for them. It's a it's a challenging one. So, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that bringing that up. I had no idea. Um Michael, thank you for for taking some time out of your day to to share this expertise with us, to get into the weeds on this data too. Should people want to learn more about you or herd, where can they go? If you're interested in reading the report, it's available for free on our website. Uh, you can go to joinherd.com under the resources section. You'll, you'll see it there in our resource hub. Also, if you just Google financial state of private practice, it should, it should show up. Um, so yeah, definitely go check that out. Um, and also we have a really great newsletter that goes out you know, every week. You can sign up for that on our website. We're also on, on social media as well. If, if you're interested in learning more about private practice finances, I know Andrew Reason, our CEO has been on the podcast as well. So definitely sure. recommend that you go back and listen to that episode if you hadn't. Yeah. And thank you for promoting within our podcast, a previous one with y'all. Uh, Andrew and I had a great conversation and that one got a little bit more into the weeds of like business entity and formation. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to start a practice? Because my gosh, are there a lot of hurdles? And as as much as like today, you're going to get a little bit more of like, once you get started in your private practice, here's what it's going to look like. So yeah, like Michael said, highly encourage and want to recommend people to check that podcast episode out. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. I'm Dr. Samuel Lustgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists.
As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as clinical or financial advice or continuing education.